Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. I'm so excited to introduce you all to today's guest. He is a truly brilliant man that is and always has been way ahead of his time, Dr. James Hart. Dr. Hart is an acclaimed research scientist, psychologist, and author that has made it both his lifelong mission and vocation to expand the boundaries of Western scientific exploration of the human brain. I know, brain science literally the coolest thing on earth. Dr. Hart is known for inventing the world's first microcomputer-based brainwave analyzer and biofeedback system, and for serving as the president and founder of the BioCybernaut Institute. They are at BioCybernaut on Instagram, should you want to check it out. At the BioCybernaut Institute, Dr. Hart offers cutting-edge neurofeedback systems, which are unique brain training programs that help to empower business founders and leaders and folks like you and me to revolutionize performance. Through his programs, Dr. Hart has worked with Fortune 500 CEOs, world-class business leaders, professional athletes, even Zen and yogi masters. He's been doing this for over 40 years, working in biofeedback and studying the electrophysiological basis of advanced spiritual states, which you can learn more about in his book, The Art of Smart Thinking, and the more than 60 scientific papers and presentations on brainwave activity that Dr. Hart has earned a national reputation for being a preeminent researcher of. He is both a scientist and an expert in elevating human consciousness. 
so you know I had to talk to him. In my conversation with Dr. Hart, we discuss his childhood, his extensive education, what inspired him to explore the spiritual mind, and how that led him to a professional journey researching the brain. He'll talk to us about our ability to control our brain waves, the importance of owning our own emotions, meditation, neurofeedback, what the brain-body connection really means, and so much more. Enjoy. As a scientist, you're looking at the scientific landscape, the academic landscape, research that's being done into the brain and how it functions, and you realize there really is, through the brain, a pathway to spirituality, to consciousness, to awakening, to a more, I believe, unified view of of the world and its people. And so how do you say, here I am with this enormous academic career and I'm going to go diving into the spiritual mind next? What, what, was the, what was the impetus for you? Well, it began, uh, I was a grad student um, and I had another friend who was a grad student at another university, Duquesne University, studying phenomenological psychology. And he was introducing me to people like Father Pierre Thierry de Chardin, um, who wrote an amazing book called The Phenomenon of Man. And I was excited about all of this stuff, this, this, these theories, these philosophies, but it was mm. just talk. And then in the, actually it was in the, my senior year in the mm-hmm. physics, I came out of the student union at Carnegie Institute of Technology after lunch and I was confronted by a large hand-painted sign, every letter a different color. And it said, mm. Dr. Joe Kabia will talk on brainwaves and consciousness. And they gave it time that was oh, just 10 minutes away. The building was right over here, and I didn't have a class, so I went. And all of a sudden, wow. I discovered that there was a science and a technology relating to measuring and then training brainwaves, which made real... And grounded all of this amazing philosophy and psychology and spirituality in scientific facts. And it turns mm. out that, for example, the superconscious state in uh, yoga is called samadhi. The superconscious state in Zen is called satori. And both of them are characterized by super high alpha all over the head. Mm. But Zen and yoga philosophy are quite different. And so it turns out that the, there's massive differences in the way that a yogi in samadhi responds to stimulus compared to the way a Zen monk in satori responds. If, and these studies have been done, yogi sitting there in samadhi and mm. you take a pair of symbols and clash them right next to his ear. His consciousness is not disturbed. The alpha just pours out. You take, wow. you take a hot branding iron, red hot, and you put it on his arm and the flesh burns and the smoke curls up, the alpha is unperturbed. It's like that reality doesn't exist. You put the hand in the bucket of ice water. Most people can handle that maybe five minutes. Half an hour later, the alpha is just pouring out the yogi. Now, yogic philosophy says all of this is maya. It's illusion. 
The only real reality is within. And he's absorbed in that, and so none of this matters. Okay, wow. now what about the high alpha in a Zen monk in Satori? Well, all you do is take a tiny little bell and ring it by the ear, and the alpha blocks. But it yeah. comes back. You ring it again, and the alpha blocks and comes back. Now, with an ordinary person, we did that for you. By the sixth time or the eighth time we ring the bell, your brain would go, oh, it's that little bell again. It's not interesting. It's not dangerous. And your alpha doesn't block. But the thousandth time you ring the bell by the ear of the Zen monk in Satori, his alpha will block. It's like the William Blake phrase, the British poet. He said, when the doors of perception are cleansed, everything appears to man as it is, namely infinite. And so if you look at the difference in the brainwaves of the superconscious states, it completely explains the difference in the philosophy of yogic philosophy versus Zen philosophy. And also has implications because in Japan, the bullet trains run on time. They have these enormous clean rooms where they grow these giant silicon wafers. They dominate the global semiconductor industry. That mm-hmm. level of perfection of the physical world is not even of interest to those following the yogic philosophy. And so this is why at Bhaskaravanat we say, Brain waves rule. They rule your thoughts, they rule your emotions, they rule your perceptions. You can't even have the experience of the color blue unless you have the brain waves for blue running in the back of your head and the occipital wow. visual cortex. I mean, it's just all so mind blowing and exciting <laughs> and 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 I remember the year that I turned twenty three I learned uh transcendental meditation. And so I was reading so much research on it and I was so fascinated by how, you know, to your point, for thousands of years, monks and spiritual teachers had been describing what was possible with consciousness. And finally, our science had caught up to be able to see this on scans and on, you know, the analysis of brain waves and pictures of the brain. And, And I just thought, you know, there, there are some things that are truer than true for us. And that was really where my curiosity about all of this began. And, and it was actually in doing some study for me that began about, oh, I don't know, three years ago now, uh, reading The Body Keeps the Score and learning about how trauma or traumatic experience affect the brain. Because we all grow up in a society that says, get over it, don't cry, look at all this other stuff that's going well in your life, whatever, to any person who experiences any kind of level from minor to major of trauma, yet our brains are affected. You know, these these sort of messes of cells in our bodies are affected in ways that change our neurological pathways based on emotional experience. And I, I was just fascinated by all of this and that's what led me down a pathway to um, go and study from some teachers at a place called Onsite outside of Nashville. And that's what then led me to start really looking into neural feedback. And I'm so lucky that one of my best friends, my my girlfriend Sam, is just as amped on this stuff as I am. And she is 
I always tell her she's the researcher of the researchers. And she was the one who found BioCybernaut. And then we became so obsessed and we read everything we could find on your institute. And then we were like, well, obviously we have to go. <laughs> and and this then this is how we're here today. But before we really get into this, because I do have so many questions about consciousness, meditative states, how each of us has the capacity to learn our brain, work with our brain. But I, I want to go backwards because we're speaking about some pretty high science here. And you mentioned meeting uh, Dr. Kamiya, and I, I want to hear about that. But I want to go even further back first. I'm so curious. When I meet someone who I'm so impressed by in the present, I always wonder what they were like as kids. I I wonder, you know, were, were you always into science as a young boy, you know, who, who was Dr. Hart back at 10? Well, that's what a were fun, you fascinated that's by? That's a fun story. Um, when I was in second grade, uh, I had the measles. Serious. Mm. Uh, and it settled in my eyes. Uh, my mother remembers uh, having to hang army blankets on the windows because the light hurt my eyes. When mm. I recovered from the measles, I was profoundly nearsighted. And so I got glasses, and then my father made a strict rule that I was not allowed to read more than two dozen books per week. And when I would bring my weekly allotment of two dozen books home, he would count them to make sure there was only two dozen. But, of course, I would cheat. After school, I would go to the library, and I would read unauthorized books. Wow. Two dozen books per week. In second grade. That was what was allowed. Wow. So you were always a bookworm, fascinated. A bookworm, a bookworm yes. I mean, a, well, a voracious then, reader is an understatement. Do you know of uh, Margaret Mead, uh, the famous anthropologist? Yes, I do know about her a bit. Um, she, uh, w her father was an anthropologist, and he dragged the family along as he was studying various primitive cultures, and so she attributes. Uh, an aspect of the development of her intelligence to the fact that she was brought up in a lot of different cultures. And so she mm. knew not to take cultural rules and regulations seriously. And so uh, that, mm. um, that would, although I wasn't in, ever taken out of the country, for example, after fifth grade, I was take, my family went to Louisiana where my dad taught summer school. Um, yeah. and then after a summer, we went to Arkansas where I did sixth and seventh grade. And I was a damn Yankee because I had come from Minnesota or Wisconsin. And after two years in the South, we moved back to Illinois and I'd picked up a bit of a Southern drawl. And now I was <laughs> discriminated against for being a Johnny Reb. And so I got to see that these, uh, cultural prejudices are really just made up. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm a Johnny Reb, but I was born in Minnesota. So how can this be? Uh, mm -hmm. And so that gave me some uh, additional ability to sort of go outside the box, which seems to be necessary to, you know, make important uh, shifts and changes. That's so interesting because it it makes me realize that as a young kid, my path to spirituality was growing up in a family that was a mixture of very strict Italian Catholics, um, a, a, one parent who was an agnostic, extended family that was all Jewish, and 
growing up celebrating Christmas and Hanukkah, I, <laughs> I was always, I was so struck. I was like, why uh-huh. do people fight over religion? Because essentially they all say the same thing and like everybody has great food. <laughs> and that really took me into studying so many other, you know, religions and, and faith sets. And even in college, studying journalism and, and political science, I was taking theology because I was just so fascinated by where do we, where do we find the merger of identity and belief? And why do we keep this idea of what we believe in that gives us our identity separate from the science that gives us our practical ability to survive? So that's, that's very cool. When when you moved back to Illinois, is that is that where you were for uh, high school? Eighth grade through high school, yeah. Hmm. And I should mention that I was told that two of my great grandmothers were Jewish, uh, but I was raised Lutheran uh, hmm. because my dad's father was a Lutheran minister, and so I had a very heavy dose of Protestant fundamentalism uh, and uh, considered myself to be very devout. And when uh, in the summer after graduating uh, from college, uh, remember I met Joe Camilla in the fall semester, uh, in the spring when I graduated with a degree in physics, I got on my Triumph motorcycle and rode up into Canada, across the continent, down the coast to San Francisco, showed up at Joe's lab and volunteered as a research subject what happened to me there when i went in the chamber i was a protestant fundamentalist physics major with that worldview but what happened to me (laughs) just it it blew the lid off and i realized there's way more to reality to spirituality and to divinity than i had been taught what do you think well oh i want to ask you a question but but i don't want to skip over college so quickly because I'm curious where where did you go and how did you determine what you wanted to study because as as an obviously curious kid and being such a voracious reader even at a young age how did that change for you through high school was it was it in high school that you were realizing that you really wanted to focus on subspecialties of science or did that happen at university well, in the summer between eighth grade and high school, this is, had been mm. one year in the uh, Chicago suburb of Mount Prospect. I went around to eighth grade. My father called me into his office. He said, Jim, you're a smart kid and you're probably going to want to go to college. Well, I'm here to tell you I'm not going to give you a dime. If you want to go to college, you're going to have to study hard and get a scholarship. And so in high school, I didn't drink. I didn't date. I didn't party. I was for a while on uh, a few months on the gymnastics team, um, mm. and I was number one on side horse and number two on rings. Wow. But I found that my daily German tests were slipping. Uh, we had to learn 25 German words every day. Uh, in, from 100%, I was down to 95, so I quit the gymnastics team, and the only team I was on in high school was the debate team. I knew I wanted to go into science. Mm. I loved science. I did really well in high school. And so I applied uh, to college as a physics major at uh, Carnegie Mellon. Well, it's kind of funny. It was spring semester, uh, my senior year. I walk into the counseling office, and one of the counselors comes, have you heard from Carnegie Institute of Technology yet? And I go, huh? 
you mean you haven't applied? No. So we quickly yeah. applied and they gave me a full scholarship and, uh, you know, room and board and all of that. And so I was uh, all through college. I was a physics major. Now, along the way, I met uh, and became friends with this grad student from Duquesne who was studying uh, phenomenology. Uh, and what is that? What is phenomenology? It's it's a, a sort of psychological science that attempts to study the structure of consciousness. One of the professors mm-hmm. there, Dr. Rolf von Eckertsberg, became a dear friend, and he was on my dissertation committee. And whatever he was doing, he was studying the structure of his consciousness. He might be playing with his children, uh, making love with his wife, uh, uh, giving a lecture in front of a class at college. And that's what it looked like he was doing. But inside, what he was doing was studying the structure of his consciousness. And so I thought that was pretty cool. And so, uh, but there was no way to know what was going on until I came upon brainwaves. And that was in that lecture with Dr. Kamiya. Yes, yes. And uh, when I became a grad student then, I was in psychology at Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, uh, the Most of the professors there were rat runners, uh, behaviorists. They didn't believe in experience. They said experience is not measurable. And so I uh, and I I actually earned their respect and their enmity by bringing to their attention an experiment. Now you know that if you look at the sun and then close your eyes, you see visual afterimages. You see the sun burning in your eyes. It takes a while to fade. Well, mm-hmm. it turns out that if you uh, brainwaves are being measured and you look at a bright light, your alpha will drop. The visual input will uh, cut down the amplitude of the alpha. Well, I found a research paper that was able to measure the alpha reduction caused by looking at visual afterimages with closed eyes. Now, that's a purely subjective experience. Nobody outside of you can prove that you're looking at afterimages, but it's measurable in terms of your alpha brainwaves. And so that turned the tide, and one of the senior professors actually gave up on behaviorism in a, in a class. Daryl Ben. Wow. It was very impressive. So what was it that sent you on this path? Was it the lecture with, with Dr. Kamiya, and then you really decided to go and follow the pathways of the brain? Um, and one thing I do want to tell everyone who's listening at home is that Dr. Joe Camilla, who we've been mentioning, is the scientist who first discovered back in 1962 that humans could actually voluntarily control their own brainwaves if they were given brainwave feedback. And and my my question for you is, uh, for people who haven't been able to attend BioCybernaut yet, I should say, I my dream is that we all, everyone in, on Earth would be able to go. Um, is could you explain to the listeners what that means and and I imagine once we understand what that means we'll know why you were so fascinated to make it your area of study okay wonderful question and and I share <laughs> with you uh, the the idea of everybody being able to come to biocybernaut I jokingly say this training's not for everyone it's only for people uh. with brains <laughs> <laughs> And if you have a brain, it can be better brain. It can work better, uh, be a healthier brain, be a more youthful brain. 
after your biosabinate training. This training can actually reverse aging in the brain. That's something we can get to a little later. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, meet Joe Camilla. I hear this talk. It's fascinating. Uh, I'm in the habit of going to San Francisco every summer where his lab is. So I say, I'd love to come and meet you. Could we correspond? Mm-hmm. And we work out how to do that. And then I go to the library. And I start reading everything I can find on brainwaves, the history. It actually goes back to uh, 1908 when an Austrian psychiatrist named Herr Dr. Dr. Hans Berger discovered brainwaves. He kept it a secret for 10 years because he thought it was somehow related to ESP. There's a fascinating... There's a fascinating story there I could tell uh, another time or later. And then in 1918, when he published, it became a sensation spread all over the world. Every hospital had to have an EEG machine. And, you know, they were studying the health of the brain. You do an eyes open Mm. and eyes closed baseline. You can tell a lot about whether the brain is healthy or not. And so... But then it was, as you said, until 1962, before Joe Camilla sort of accidentally discovered that people could voluntarily control their own brainwaves. And that is where things really got interesting. Now, I was fascinated. Uh, as I said, I did all this research. Uh, but when I arrived in Joe Camilla's lab, I probably knew more about brainwaves, uh, alpha brainwaves at least than any other person on the planet because I'd read every paper that had ever been published three times before I arrived mm. in San Francisco. So then I volunteered as a research subject and it was fairly primitive. Uh, they had a huge PDP 15 mm. mini computer that was running it. <clears throat> the feedback chamber, it was in an old house at the edge of campus. The feedback chamber was a closet off the bedroom where the computer was set up. There was one little three-digit uh, score machine. It was a Nixie mm-hmm. tube. One torn speaker sitting on an orange crate in the corner of the closet. And uh, so one uh, channel of feedback from the middle of the back of my head. Now, it was the most fascinating thing I had ever done. But it was wow. also frustrating because I'd be sitting there, eyes closed, and there'd be a surge of alpha and my rational brain, my mind, would jump at it. What was that? How did it do it? How can I keep it going? And it would recede. And so yes. then I'd relax, and there'd be another burst of tone, and my brain would go, what's that? How can I keep it going? And it would recede. So what I learned to do mm. was put a leash on that aspect of my consciousness. So the tone would mm. come, and it would want to go, rrr, rrr, and I would like hold it back for maybe a second. And so the yeah. tone could get bigger. Then the next time, a second and a half. And pretty soon, I'm mostly in alpha. And the three days that I had, uh, which were fascinating, were absolutely wonderful. I wanted more. I went back on the fourth day. They weren't doing any studies. But Dr. Camille's girlfriend, Joanne Gardner, worked in the lab. And she and I had become friends. Went to her office and said, Joanne, could you please put some electrodes on me so and put me in the chamber so I could play? She said, sure. We go downstairs. She puts me in the closet, uh, starts the equipment, goes upstairs, forgets I'm there. Later, lunchtime comes. She and nine other people go out to lunch. And in course 11 of a Chinese 12-course 12, uh, 12 lunch, she goes, oh, my God. And she remembered there was somebody in the chamber. And they'll go racing back across town, run to the building, rip open the door of the chamber, and interrupted the later stages of a most incredible adventure, which I have described in first-person detail in a paper on the publication section of the Biosabinate website. It's called A Tale of Self-Discovery. 
Now, remember, mm-hmm. I'd gone in there as a Protestant fundamentalist physics major. Well, suddenly I'm I'm out of body. I'm flying around the universe. I'm having discorporate, you know, ex- entities uh, I'm meeting up with. Uh, I'm having dissociative experiences, and uh, I'm, I'm feeling higher. I mean, I had never even been drunk before this. I'd never done any drugs, and all of a sudden, like I'm out of body and flying around the universe. It was so incredibly amazing. In fact, mm. when they when the door opened and they interrupted the later stages of this adventure, uh, there's 10 people standing there. And so they're asking me, well, what happened? Because this had never happened to them before. They'd never forgotten somebody in the chamber for hours. And so I'm telling these stories. And Paul Gorman, who with his wife had toured India the summer before, would say, oh, that's a meditation experience. Oh, that's a meditation. I didn't even know what meditation was. And yet I was having these experiences, which were only available to very advanced meditators. And so I later, well, I was three days. I I was like, I was still out of body uh, walking around. My feet weren't touching the ground. It was euphoric, blissful. And then suddenly summer was over and I decided that I needed to go back to Carnegie Mellon register for grad school in psychology to get my rational mind stamped with somebody's seal of approval, PhD in psychology, because I knew I'd be working with really weird stuff. And so I register and then I go walk up the hill to the big rented mansion of Dr. Rolf von Eckertsburg, uh, who'd become my friend. And he had been a grad student under Timothy Leary at Harvard. And he had done wow. tons of LSD. He had lived at the community in Millbrook, where he and his future wife had done tons of LSD. Their three children, who were gorgeous, had all been conceived consciously on LSD. So I figured if anybody knows what happened to me, it's going to be Rolf. So I walk into his office, and he he sees I'm different. He goes, sit down. So I sit down at, across from him, and he takes his arm and sweeps everything off his desk and goes like this. He says, okay, tell me what happened. And so for three and a half hours, I'm giving him the details that are in that tale of self-discovery paper. And when I finish, he smiles. He says, we can do that here. And in that moment, I had a vocation. A vocation was installed. My vocation is to bring everybody's inner into the outer to help people attain higher consciousness. It's not a job. It's not a profession. It's not a career. It's a vocation. And I do it pretty much 24-7 with a passion, as you can tell. Mm -hmm. And I had just registered for grad school. They had a soundproof chamber there in the department. Nobody was using it. And a pile of old equipment, which I knew with my physics degree, I could cobble together and make a primitive brainwave feedback system. And so that's what I did. And it's so fascinating to me because you, you mentioned something as you tell the story. We're talking deep physics the science of the brain, neural feedback, brain waves that we make. You're talking about the experience that meditators have been having for, you know, tens of thousands of years. And you're talking about some of the science about expansive consciousness that was discovered in research around compounds like LSD, which 
I, I have to admit, I just had a conversation with a friend about this the other day who said, you know, you're so into expanded consciousness and, and all of these things and indigenous culture. And it's weird to me that you've never tried LSD. And I was like, well, you know, I mean, LSD is like, I, I just, I'm so sensitive to things. And I, I think that it's maybe not for me. You know, I think it's interesting that the earth gives us things, you know, again, look at tribal culture, look at the experience of, you know, psilocybin, the research coming out of, an or, you know, organizations like MAPS, uh, beautiful indigenous rites and ceremonies that exist with things, um, you know, like ayahuasca. I, I have such deep respect for those. And I was like, I just don't know how I feel about a compound that like somebody developed in a lab. It's not natural. And the friend I was talking, the friend I was talking to said, yes, it is. What are you talking about? Yes, and yes. I realized... I was like, oh my God, I, I guess just as a kid who was always like really paranoid and maybe when I was younger, a little more judgmental of things that were quote experimental, I kind of believed the hype that I'd heard. Mm. And, and so it's so interesting to me. I say all of this only because I noticed that each of these things, whether it's a compound, uh, a meditation or spiritual practice or a deep scientific exploration like that of the brainwaves, they all lead, all signs point to the same road. They all lead to an expanded consciousness that lowers anxiety, increases our feelings of connectedness with each other, and and makes us more expansive human beings. And to me, what that highlights, especially when science and spirituality overlap, is that there's really a calling for us to learn these lessons. Yes. And when it can be as scientific as the work that you do, it like, it spins. I feel like my brain has gone in a blender in a good way. Uh -huh. Like I've been so whipped up <laughs> and I'm so excited about it. And, and so when you talk about, you know, these beginnings, building the first neural feedback machine that you did, launching into this as, as your research project to be as both scientific and expansive as possible. Again, big concepts. I'm sure that there's people at home listening who are really excited right now and also some people who are like, what in the hell are these two talking about? So I'm curious when, when you look at the landscape, especially for people who don't have the you know, 40 years of neural research that you do under your belt. What, what do you wish that people could know about the brain? What, what do you, what do you think that, what are some facts that you think maybe not everybody knows, but should? Well, let's start with a very simple one. I said it before, and I've actually trademarked this phrase, brainwaves rule. Now, if somebody takes LSD or ayahuasca or ibogaine or psilocybin, this is going to change their brainwaves, and that is what's going to give them the altered state of consciousness. If you voluntarily turn on the brainwaves of LSD, you will have an LSD-like experience. In, in fact, I know a Danish researcher who has gone to Peru with a portable EEG measuring machine, and he studied ayahuasca rituals, and ayahuasca, he said, increases alpha at left and right occipital and left and right central, which are exactly the locations that we use for our alpha one brainwave training. And yeah. it doesn't happen much anymore, but well into the nineties, people would come out of the biocybernaut chamber on day three or four and say, man, that was better than my best acid trip because brainwaves <laughs> rule. And anything yeah. that you do that gives you an experience, 
whether it's sex or fasting or Sufi dancing or meditating or taking plant medicine, it has an effect only if it changes your brainwaves because uh. brainwaves rule. And this allows you to put all these different methods because a Zen monk might look pretty down on taking ayahuasca or LSD mm-hmm. and uh, somebody at a rave might be pretty skeptical about sitting on a Zafu Zebulon for 40 years in order to get high, but they're all doing the same thing. They're doing a method to change their brainwaves. Wow. Brainwaves rule. Wow. So when we think about the ways brainwaves can be so pleasurable and expansive, I also am I'm curious if you can give us some of the science to, to something I mentioned a little while back, you know, reading The Body Keeps the Score really informed me about how whether trauma, whether it's a traumatic experience or or a horrible memory, um, the phrase goes, the neurons that fire together wire together. So you have a traumatic experience, you fire these neural pathways, and then you begin to have a response. Anytime something like that experience happens to you, that's where this term being triggered by something comes from. You, you know, let's say that a woman has been Unfortunately, obviously, a a woman has been sexually assaulted. When she experiences harassment or unwanted sexual touching in a public place, those deep neural pathways of trauma refire and someone will say, hey, that wasn't that bad or calm down, but it's a deeper thing that's being triggered and for so many people, they think maybe it's, you know, medication, antidepressants, talk therapy that I have to do to get over something like this. But neurons can actually be retrained out of traumatic pathways. Can you explain to us how that works? Oh, sure. I'd love to. Well, as you know, uh, we have these computerized mood scales that people take several times a day while they're wired, their brainwaves are being recorded. And I wrote this program many years ago. I've upgraded it. It allows me or other people leading the biosavernaut training to know what are the unconscious triggers for you? What are the unconscious traumas? And so with this added information, then you can be asked to talk about it, see if anything comes up. If you can't remember anything, then you do an inquiry in the chamber where you ask Alpha, Mm. show me everything. I'm ready to know about this topic. Mm. And then we have a 14-step forgiveness method. So if there was some uh, sexual assault in the past, uh, then what you do is you bring up uh, the perpetrator in a courtroom with your three judges, unimpeachable high beings, and you accuse that person. And then you go, you spend an epic feeling the pain. So you reconnect with the pain. You know you've mm. connected if your alpha drops, the scores turn white. And then you begin the forgiveness process. And mm-hmm. one of the things to do is to ask, first decide to forgive. And then you walk in the person's shoes. You look through their eyes. And all of these things will help you to forgive. Because in yoga, for example, they talk about non-attachment. It's important to be non-attached. But I've learned that if you have not forgiven, you cannot be unattached. Well, I'll tell a story to illustrate. For one year, I had a satellite operation in Raleigh, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. I took some of my technology there and I built a training center. While there... I trained a woman whose father was the head of a local Ku Klux Klan group 
Whoa. Now, this woman came to training with her therapist psychologist because she was not considered stable enough to be out anywhere by herself. Starting when she was three years old, her father began raping her on the oh. altar, and he would have the other clan members rape his three-year-old daughter. This abuse was so horrific that she fractionated into 12 multiple personalities, some of them male. When the abuse was coming, the little girls would run back and hide, and the boys would come forward and handle the abuse. And there were I could tell many stories, but I won't. Um, When she was 15, the boy personalities ganged up and made her run away from home. And the father pursued her. You know, he'd find out where she was. He'd send threatening letters. You have to come back and serve the clan. Of course, she didn't. And so now she's in training. I didn't know. All I knew was she was a multiple. I didn't know any of the details. And so on the morning of day three, when Randy is put, my technician is putting on the electrodes, she tells me this story. And I go, well, obviously, you're going to have to forgive your father. Well, when I said forgive your father, she jumped out of her chair, exploded in rage, shaking her fists in the air, yelling and screaming. She turned beet red. Her blood pressure was off the charts. Adrenaline, cortisol coursing through her blood. And I couldn't of get course. in a word in edgewise because she's screaming so loud. Well, then she screamed out all her air and uh, had to, like, take a long breath, like, <sighs> so she could holler some more. And in that pause, I quickly said, well, I didn't say you should tell him. One of the personalities thought that was funny, and she giggled. And so now I had somebody to talk to, and I said, yeah, don't tell him you forgive him. He'd consider it as a weakness. And so I don't want you to forgive him for him. I want you to forgive him for you. And so then we had a conversation, and she began doing the forgiveness work. And as she did, that was day three. We had, as you know, seven days in the training. As she forgave her father, those altars circled in, and by the end of the week, she was one integrated human being. She was no longer a multiple personality. Her psychologist who was with her was like jaw-dropping agape. She'd never seen or even thought such a thing was possible. And then for years after, on Mother's Day, she would call me and thank me for having given birth to the integrated person that she now was. Oh, my God, that's so unbelievable. Surprising. You said surprising. And um, Incredibly surprising. And this is what I mean, you know, when I I left my first training, you know, first and only so far, I just kept thinking if everyone had access to this, if this was part of our rearing, if, if this was part of school, if you had an annual experience like this at, at school, this, this would change everything about the way that we live and the way that we exist, not only in our own brains and bodies, but in society. And, and to your point, being in the neural feedback chamber, hearing, hearing the brain, first of all, it was crazy. The first time I heard my brain, I thought I was going to cry. I was like, this is very emotional to a, to a person who loves science. I could cry. Yeah, yeah. And, and these protocols were so specific and and something that I found was this idea of, of these judges that, that each of us in the process assigns to kind of be with us. I realized um, that the judges, for me at least, felt like personifications of my deeper knowing, mm, of wow. my intuition, wow. of my 
of, of, of the things that I trust to be true, regardless of my emotions at any state in my life. And, and so it was interesting because how many times have we, have we all ignored a feeling or perhaps gone against our better judgment to, you know, appease a group or whatever. I remember the first time I asked, am I done forgiving? And I, I had the experience of no, not yet. I already knew the answer. <laughs> and I knew that I had more work to do and and the and the space in in the feedback experience was so cool because I could see that I was doing the work. It wasn't just theoretical. Right. It wasn't just an exercise. I got to see that my brain was recreating a new neural pathway and it's to your point, it is a, I mean, it's a trip. It is a profound experience. And you realize how deeply important the ownership of our emotions and the work on those parts of ourselves is to the actual science of how our body functions. Yeah, because if so, there's a trauma in the brain, body's not mm-hmm. going to work well. Yeah. And in so many other avenues. I'm I'm curious about because you know you mentioned it a bit and and I'll I'll walk the listeners kind of through my experience when what you're discussing um, each of us who goes in for the program and I was there with my friend Sam who I mentioned our our other friend Laura who we've stayed in touch with since our experience there and then Linda was our teacher at BioCybernaut and every day we would do work in the morning. We would learn about the brain. We would analyze our brain waves from, from the day before. It's very scientific. And then it's also like the most intense, amazing therapy you've ever done. You're talking about, you know, these protocols about mood scales, about negative emotions, the ego, forgiveness, awareness, your thinking. It's, it's really profound. And then we would go downstairs and we'd each go into our own soundproof chamber to do the work. You're surrounded by this incredible, however you guys did the speakers, it's unreal because you're surrounded by enough sound that it sounds like you're inside of your own brain. You are, absolutely. Well said. Yeah, but I mean, you lose, I remember remember just losing any awareness of kind of space. Mm -hmm. It was like I was just floating in a room of, of sound that was coming from everywhere. And we are going through these protocols. You're going through work and you've mapped the workout very specifically every day that you're going to go in and do. And when you talk about the the colors and the tones, so uh, the way it works, listeners, is that you see each, where each electrode is on the brain, you see the number of, of what the brain waves are doing in that part. So you get a screen and it's got a bunch of numbers on it. And they're always in the same place so you can kind of see what your brain's doing. And your brain, because it's hearing itself, you're taking in your own brain waves as new auditory information. So your brain is learning to make the sounds more coherent. And you are learning about what it is you're doing sort of intellectually and emotionally and spiritually that is actually raising those brain waves. So every time the brain waves are going up, you're getting these blue and green scores. And then to your point, Dr. Hart, when the scores turn white, the the alpha is beginning to decrease. You've finished a forgiveness. You've finished a task. The brain is beginning to come down a little bit. And then you work to take it back up. And and it's it's like the most aggressive mental gymnastics I've ever done in my life. Um <laughs> 
that that was also the most rewarding. And I remember midway through the week, Sam looked at me and she said, I don't know anyone else who could do this. <laughs> and, and I thought, yeah, I don't know a lot of people who'd sign up for this. This is so hard, but it's also so rewarding. And I wish everyone would sign up for it. So that that's kind of the the explainer. And then when we're talking about making alpha, we're talking about increasing alpha waves. Now, what I learned at, at the Institute is that beta waves are kind of our doer waves. When we're texting, when we're responding to emails, you're like a little bit tense and you're working and you're problem solving, you're in a beta. And then from there, we move up into alpha. And this is the point where I'm going to stop talking and ask you to explain to people what are the next stages of brain waves? What does alpha mean and what comes after alpha? Well, as you said, beta is associated with doer, but also with irritation, annoyance, mm. uh, and even anger. Uh, and so uh, at one point when I was doing uh, my large federal grant, uh, the granting agency wanted me to have uh, some kind of sham feedback. And I said, well, you can't have sham feedback because people will detect it pretty quickly. I said, but if you want, I will scale up beta waves because they're much smaller than alpha, and I'll give people feedback on beta. And so for the federal grant, in some of the conditions, uh, people had beta feedback, and they hated it. They found that it it made them anxious and irritable and upset, and they couldn't wait for it to be over. Whereas with alpha, now alpha is a really interesting wave because it has one foot in the ordinary phenomenal world of creativity and the high IQ, mm-hmm. has another foot in the world of mystical, magical, and transcendence. And so mm-hmm. you can go back and forth, whereas the deeper wave like theta is pretty much uh, just deep. And if you are in theta... Uh, you don't have that much contact with the phenomenal world. When I first started doing theta trainings for the public, uh, what we would do is we would confiscate people's car keys. And at the end of the day, and the days then were shorter than they are now, the protocols have evolved, uh, and we typically have dinner at the end of the day because the days are longer. But we would, uh, when people finished their theta training, uh, this was at... Uh, uh, a favorite place in uh, Palo Alto. It's a high-end business park with little manicured, uh, little grass-covered hills and duck ponds. We would ask people <laughs> to take their shoes and socks off and go walk in the cool, wet grass until their pupils got smaller. And only when their pupils got smaller would we give them their keys back. Because wow. when I trained my uh, one and only business partner, Foster Gamble, when he had his first theta training, uh, I said, now, Foster, I'm going to have to follow you home every day after your training. And so he said, OK, fine. So uh, the second or third red light that he came to, uh, he uh, sat there. Uh, the light turned green. He sat there. The light turned red. Uh, he sat there, light turned green. He, said, he went through three cycles of the light turning red and green and red and green uh, before he went off. Well, that's the kind of place that people can get to uh, in Theta, where they're not really uh, uh, responsible, uh, like to drive a car. So that's why we would make sure that their pupils uh, were no longer dilated before we'd give them their car keys back. Now, in Theta, mm. uh, we might say a little bit about this. 
Uh, Theta allows you to access the Akashic Records, which is an energetic database of all knowledge that is, was, or ever will be. At one Mm -hmm. point, Michael Ray, a professor at Stanford, uh, who uh, I was friends with, he spoke at Mind Center several times, he wrote a book called Creativity and Business. And in there, he described how the titans of industry, the leaders of these amazingly powerful high-tech corporations, had gotten into trouble as kids in school for sitting, staring thoughtlessly and wordlessly out the window. They were in a theta trance. And so in theta, you can pull in new knowledge that's not known to you and maybe not even known to any human in your time period. And so uh, the theta creativity allows you in theta to solve problems that really can't be solved in your time period because you don't have key information. Now, in alpha creativity, what you do is your brain goes out into your storehouse of memory, maybe things that you forgot, but you knew once, and it assembles things in a novel way to make the creative synthesis to solve the problem. When I trained a group of Stanford Research Institute scientists, we measured their creativity before and after the week of alpha training, and on average, they went up 50%, and some of them solved problems in the biosovereign alpha chamber that they had been unable to solve for two years of daily pounding their head against it in their labs. And so wow. there's alpha creativity and then there's theta creativity. How is it that our brainwaves impact our IQ and our EQ, you know, our, our intellectual intelligence and our emotional intelligence? And why is it that on average, after people have done their first alpha training, their IQ goes up by over 10 points. What is that? Average of 11.7 points, and it's stable at least a year out, which is as far as we've measured it. Wow. Well, uh, at one point, one, one summer, everybody who came to do the training, I gave them the Kaufman Adolescent and Adult Intelligence Test. This can be done only one person at a time, and it takes four hours because you give them tasks to do, and they have to be timed with a stopwatch. And so it has two main dimensions, mathematical and logical uh, intelligence and verbal intelligence. And both of these dimensions of intelligence increased rapidly and uh, in, in just a week. And then the, re- the increases uh, were stable at least a year out. So both mathematical IQ, mathematical logical IQ and verbal IQ go up. It's so cool. It's just so cool. And when we talk about measurement, you know, testing the IQ, something that I think people at home who are wondering how you know the difference between brainwaves might find interesting is is that they exist on these frequency ranges of hertz. And alpha brainwaves, for example, exist between 8 and 12 hertz. So when 8 and 13, between 8 and, 8 and 13 hertz. So we're when we're talking about how you're measuring the brainwaves, the the electrodes we're hooked up to are constantly monitoring what hurts our brain is outputting. Now, a brain wave is an an electrical impulse between neurons, and those things communicate actions, emotions, and ideas, which is why it's so fascinating to start thinking about raising the brain waves because we're raising the frequency at which our ideas come to us. And to your point, really high-frequency ideas can be incredibly creative. Sometimes you'll hear an artist or a writer say, this came through me. I don't even know where this came from. I was in flow, and it just happened. It was coming out of, it was coming out of me. I was writing it. I was singing it, whatever it might be. 
And that's something that really interests me. Whenever I hear an artist or a writer that I love now talk that way, I think, I wonder what what hurts her brain was producing when, <laughs> when that happened. Well, what you have to get out of the way is the logical, analytical, and verbal mind, which mm. you have to suspend beta in order to go into the creative alpha or the deeper right. creative uh, state of theta. Right. So I'm curious, when we think about what those increased alpha waves can do, we're obviously talking about a lot of incredible creative flow. We're talking about kind of freedom of ideas. We're talking about stunning spiritual experience and and at times psychedelic experience that can happen completely sober. I'm curious also about the, I suppose what we could say, the things that fall under the practical application vertical because there is a direct correlation when you raise alpha to reduction in anxiety and improvement in so many other areas of psychopathology and that that increasing alpha reduces symptoms of even, you know, diagnosed general anxiety disorder. So why is that? How how do our alpha waves work as being so transformational for anxiety because I know as a person who struggles with anxiety and and I know so many people out there in the world who are as well, that 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 was a really big draw for me to start learning about this and studying the protocol. Mm -hmm. Well, I think Cannon wrote a book called Wisdom of the Body, and there is an incredible wisdom for health, healing, happiness that is within our body-brain system. But then you mentioned Mm. the bad guy, the bad girl, the anxiety. Going all Mm. the way back to the 1890s, Early studies in psychology were able to show that anxiety impaired performance, whether it was Mm. memorizing words or uh, doing skilled tasks or even your speed in running. And so anxiety is uh, something that is best to reduce. And so it turns out that when alpha goes up, anxiety goes down. And it's mm-hmm. there's both kinds of anxiety. There's the transient of the moment anxiety called state anxiety. Uh, and then there's the long-term dispositional, you know, like the personality characteristic, that's called trade anxiety. And I published mm-hmm. a paper in one of the two leading general science magazines in the world called Science, published by the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, demonstrating that if you take high-anxiety people, and you teach them how to increase their alpha, both kinds of anxiety go down, trade anxiety and state anxiety. Now, mm. I didn't know how long it lasted, but and there was also an age factor because women are more anxious than men at every age. With age, anxiety increases in both men and women and increases faster in women. So I figured the most at-risk group for anxiety would be older women. So when I wrote the federal grant, I targeted on women who were over 60, from 60 up into their 80s, and uh, brought them in, uh, gave them the same personality test that we gave to the uh, college-age males who were the pilot uh, research subjects. Mm. And uh, then we found that not only did these elderly women have the same range of benefits as the young men did when they increased their alpha, but I wrote into the grant, six-month follow-up, and 12-month follow-ups so Mm. that we would bring them back six months after their training 
and retest them. And to our utter astonishment, they were less anxious and they were less depressed and they were less paranoid and they were less schizophrenic six months after the training than they were. And of course, right after the training, they were less so than they were at the start. So we're, while we're puzzling and over this, you know, another six months go by, we bring them back at 12 months and there are further improvements. And so mm. what we find is that these benefits, uh, the question that I had wanted to ask is, well, how long after the training uh, did the benefits wear off? But what mm. I found instead was that at least out to a year that there are increasing benefits coming to people from what I had to figure out then why it was because they shifted how they perceived themselves and reality. And yes. that led to all these beneficial changes. Now, there were also reversals in aging in the brain. As you know, alpha is 8 to 13 cycles per second. And most people, most adults, center around 10. Well, from the point in time that hardening of the arteries begins, it's called atherosclerosis. From that point forward, the frequency of the alpha waves slows by eight-tenths of a hertz for every decade of life. So if this happens, and depending wow. on your your genetics, diet, lifestyle, this could happen as early as the 20s. So in, you know, a couple of decades, people could be, their alpha, you know, once it slows, once it falls off the end below eight, it's not alpha anymore. It's uh, then people enter senescence or senility and usually mm. die soon thereafter. But with this training... I mean, diet, exercise, meditation, all this can slow the descent. Mm. The biosavonaut training can reverse it. It can actually reverse this important aspect of aging in the brain. Now, to indicate some stories about how important this is, one of my dear friends and colleagues, now departed, was Dr. Charles L. Yeager. And he was a now vanished breed of professional called a clinical electroencephalographer. He could look at a 21 channel polygraph chart of brainwaves and make psychiatric diagnoses. And so uh, in uh, the mid 1950s, he was approached by the California State Department of Mental Hygiene and they requested him to accept a grant. Now, as you know, that's not usually how you get a grant. You fight and claw your way, you know, to the goal. Mm-hmm. They went to him and said, please accept this grant. What was the grant for? To set up EEG recording labs in all 35 of the California state hospitals. Before wow. Governor Reagan closed them all down, it was a model system. And so every year with a team of technicians, Dr. Yeager would drive to each one of these state hospitals, depending on the size. He'd spend a few days or maybe more than a week there. And the technicians would go out into the wards, bring the patients in, put electrodes on, run the polygraph. Dr. Yeager would look at the polygraphs and recommend changes in their treatments, maybe different drug program, maybe different therapy, or maybe even release from the hospital. And so wow. 30 years he's doing that. And now he and I are sitting at lunch. It's uh, 1985. And he tells me some stories that never would make it into the scientific journals. He said, you know, Jim, if there was a 103-year-old person and they had good alpha in their record, I knew they would be alive when I came back next year. On the other hand, if it was a young person of 27 and their alpha had diminished or was gone he said, I would say a very special goodbye to that person, knowing it was unlikely they would be alive when he came back next year. So wow. absence of alpha is an indicator of imminently impending death. 
And we can reverse that. So here's what makes me curious. And I'm sure everybody who's listening is dying to know this. Literally. Is it possible? How how can we learn to create alpha waves? Because obviously it's one thing to be able to come to the Institute for a week as I did, which was so amazing. And again, can't wait to come back. But what, what can people at home begin to do in the interim? Is there... Is there a way to learn to create alpha waves? Is it possible for people to begin retraining oh, their brains at home? In When I had read all the research that had been published um, uh, three times, uh, I learned a lot about what I call the natural reactivity of alpha. So there are mm. things you can do. Now, the simplest one-word answer is meditate. Okay. Mm. Now, there's different styles of meditation. Some of them might work for this person and not for another person. Uh, but in general, let me give you just some of the natural reactivity of alpha. Uh, mm. You have more alpha when your eyes are closed. So don't even attempt to deal. Now, if, if you're in a business meeting and somebody's asked a difficult question, you might have seen people go, well, let me think about that. And then they come forth with a brilliant mm. answer. What have they done? They've closed their eyes and they've given themselves gentle, tactile stimulation. Well, touch in and of itself, if it's, you know, pleasant, uh, can increase alpha. Whereas visual input or auditory input lowers it, visual more than auditory. And at Biosabrina, we use a particular tone range which is has the minimal disruption of alpha for the feedback tones. So when when we're hearing feedback tones, when I'm in a chamber hearing my brain, did you you chose those tones? Scientifically. Yeah. Incredible. Can you describe to people what they sound like? Bom 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 bom. It's an <laughs> octave chord and uh it's between 4 and 800 hertz because this is the tone mm. range in which tone onset has the most minimal influence on alpha. So the tones Mm. in and of themselves don't influence your alpha. It's the information in them that you use. Well, well, let me describe it, stream of consciousness. Okay, you're sitting there, and you're thinking, and the tones are quiet. And then there's Mm. a moment where you stop thinking before you go on to the next thought. In that moment where you stop thinking, there's a little surge in the tones. Now, if you notice it and go, what was that? Now you're thinking and the tone is quiet. So you Mm -hmm. relax and you uh, attempt to stop thinking. And in the moments where you're not thinking, where the mind is not word generating, then the tones come louder. And when Mm -hmm. you have repeated experiences of that, because the tones are adjusted to track the amplitude of your alpha 50 times Mm -hmm. per second. So it's essentially instantaneous. If you have a thought, the tones drop immediately. If you pause in your thinking, the tones increase instantly. And so this gives you feedback from which you can learn Mm. very rapidly. Now, if you're doing it on your own, you want to uh, go to a quiet place. You don't want distractions. You don't want, uh, you know, a dog, you know, uh, wagging its tail against your side. Uh, or <laughs> you want, you know, no disturbance. Um, and, uh, you want it to be dark. You want to have your eyes closed. You want it to be as quiet as you can. Maybe you put earplugs in. Uh, hmm. there are yogis in India who practice nod or shug yoga who put beeswax in their ears to cut out 
the disturbances of sensory stimulation. And that way you can focus within. Now, slowing your breathing helps a little bit. Uh, anxiety is characterized by shallow, rapid breathing. So if you can slow your breathing a little bit, make it a little bit deeper, not in any effortful way. This is not a gymnastics of the lungs. You're just calmly, gently slowing and deepening your breathing a little. All of these things will move you into a slightly higher alpha state. I love that. And then, and then what, you know, what would you recommend to people? So they're in a room, preferably dark, maybe with earplugs, slowing breathing, trying to detach from thought. Is there a, is there a practice? Is there a first sort of suggestion that you give to people who want to begin playing with their alpha at home? Well, if you're doing this alone, rather than, for example, at a Barasabhna Center where you have the feedback and a skilled trainer, uh, I would focus on the positive. And so mm. before you begin this exercise, uh, make a list of things you're grateful for. Mm. Okay, because gratitude is a very powerful healing energy. Speaking of healing, let me suggest, and you know, in this time of, uh, you know, uh, the uh, pandemic, it's useful to think of the immune system. And uh, there are mm. some, uh, some ev- there's some evidence to suggest that alpha increases will improve your immune system. I know of a study done by a colleague where he took AIDS patients, uh, as you know, um, under two under T cell counts of 200 is when the opportunistic infections start showing up. And mm-hmm. so he took people who only had less than t- uh, 200 T cell counts and they had a week of alpha training after which all of them were over 1000 in their T cell count. Oh. Okay. Now that tell you another study that was done and this is inferential. Uh, there are two branches to the immune system. One is the cellularly mediated immune system, which is T cells, B cells, helper cells, the macrophages. These are cells that go out and gobble up the bad guys. Um, but there's also a humorly mediated part of the immune system that makes secretions that are either stimulating to the uh, immune cells or they actually in- induce processes that help uh, with the uh, handling the infection. And one of these aspects of the humorly mediated immune system is measured in the saliva. It's called salivary immunoglobulin A. And so you can put a little uh, piece of paper in the mouth and then test how much salivary immunoglobulin A is present. And so they took college students, divided them into two groups, and tested their salivary immunoglobulin A. And then they each of the two groups watched a movie. One watched an uplifting film about Mother Teresa, and the other watched a bloody gory film about Genghis Khan. Well, guess what? Those who watched the bloody gory film, their immune system became impaired, weakened. Those who watched the uplifting film by Mother Teresa, uh, their immune system, the humor, the humorly mediated salivary immunoglobulin A component got stronger. And so when you're doing the alpha training, and wow. reducing your anxiety, you could imagine that all those stressful things that you would have in spades watching the Genghis Khan film would be reduced. And all those uplifting things that happened in the Mother Teresa film, those you could be working on in your alpha training. That is so cool. 
That's so cool. How do you think, because to your point, some of what we intake affects oh, our brainwaves, which affects our immune system. Yep. What, what about technology, regardless of even what we're looking at on a screen, but the screens themselves? Because when I came to the Institute, you know, you're not allowed to have your phone. Um, all day we're without our phones. And, you know, there were moments where Linda and I kind of made a plan for when I could leave myself some voice memos or go over and get it out of the drawer and take some notes <laughs> so that I would be, I would be well prepared for this. Um, cause I knew even then I was like, I'm going to get Dr. Hart on my podcast if it kills me. <laughs> um, Wonderful wh- why, you, by the way. I'm just so happy. I'm so thrilled we get to hang out, even though it's through a screen. Um, why is it that at the center you're not allowed to have your phone? And 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 for people who want to begin doing this alpha expansion at home, what should they do about technology? Oh, well, uh, some technology like air conditioning is fine. <laughs> Rather than being uncomfortable and sweating in the desert, you run your air conditioner, uh, but have it on automatic. Okay, Mm. Um, but uh, well, let's talk about phones, because phones uh, do two things. One, they tell you the time. Mm. The famous Suzuki, Roshi, famous Zen master, said time is the basis of fear. If you think about it, if you think about it, uh, are you is anything bad happening to you now? No. Uh, Well, then why are you afraid? Because sometime in the future, there might be something bad that happens. So I'm going to be afraid now. So if you take time out of it, Mm. there's almost no reason to be afraid. Mm. Okay. Time is the basis of fear, said Suzuki Roshi. And Ramdas earlier said, if you want to live high, you have to live outside of time. It Mm. doesn't mean ignorant of time, but not in time. In fact, the uh, type A personality, if they have a sense of cynicism and time urgency, it's almost like a death sentence. They drop like flies from heart attacks and stress-related diseases. Time wow. urgency and cynicism, which are both anti-alpha or, you know, alpha antagonists, uh, are associated with early mortality, especially in uh, type A people. And so you want to avoid cynicism. That's why I said go into gratitude when you're doing wow. your, your homework. Uh, go into gratitude. Uh, and it could be, you know, like I, I'm holding a pen. And uh, like I really like this blue. And so I could go into a feeling of gratitude. Oh, my God, I'm so grateful that I'm able to experience such an incredibly wonderful blue. This blue, I really, I'm so grateful for being able to perceive. You can make gratitude out of anything. And so I recommend that you do it because it's alphagenic. So make avoid time. uh, And uh, in your cell phone, the cell phone connects you to time. It's most people's watch. Um, But the other thing is, and I'll tell you a little study. Uh, There was a study done where pairs of strangers were sat together in a very small room that had two chairs close together and a small table. And uh, they were told to uh, tell this stranger two stories. One was something superficial that had happened to them recently, like, oh, well, I was in line at the supermarket and the lady behind me dropped a jar of mayonnaise and some of the mayonnaise got on my right shoe. 
Okay? Mm. Something superficial. Then they're also supposed to tell the person something really meaningful that happened to them, something that was important to them. It could have been years ago. Uh, and uh, then each person took turns, and then at the end they were separated, and they were asked uh, to say how connected the other person felt to them when they were talking. Mm. Well, there were two groups. The only variable in this whole study was a book on the table or a cell phone on the table. Now, the presence of a book or cell phone made no difference in the superficial story, but it made a big difference in the meaningful story. When people were telling people, this stranger, something meaningful that happened to them, if there was a cell phone on the table, they felt the stranger was not as interested, as not connected to them, wasn't paying attention. And so that didn't happen if it was a book. So the researchers hypothesized that the presence of a cell phone, even not theirs, reminded them of the larger audience of people that they could be in touch with, reducing the amount of attention they had available for the live person right next to them. So back when I used to go to restaurants, if I had, I wouldn't want to sit on my cell phone, I wouldn't want to have it next to my body. So I would put it on the table or on the bench, but I would cover it with a napkin. So, yes, we confiscate cell phones, give them back to the end of the day, because mm-hmm. uh, we don't want people uh, concerned with time. And we also want them to be disconnected from the wider world and just focus inward on themselves. Yeah, which we get to do so rarely. <laughs> there, there were some other restrictions at the Institute which were surprising to me, Um some more so than others. I wasn't so surprised that we weren't meant to drink any alcohol during the week that we do the training. Uh, We couldn't have caffeine, which let me tell you something, as a person who really loves her morning cup of coffee is hard. But I will tell you that since BioCybernaut, I never have more than one cup of coffee a day anymore. And I used to have five. Wow. Good for you. Yeah. So that's a big change. And you don't, you didn't want us eating, which as a, again, as an Italian person is a little hard for me. You didn't want us to eat garlic or onions. Yes. Can, can you run me through why those four things are restricted? Well, you trained in my center in Canada. I did. Yeah. In Victoria, beautiful Victoria. There, uh, we had the privilege of training on a scholarship provided by a Canadian philanthropist, over 200 Canadian Aboriginal people who had been terribly abused by the racism of particularly the residential school systems, which ran up until Mm -hmm. about 1989. I heard heard about this work that you did. I really was, just as as an activist, I was really heartened by that. I thought it was a beautiful thing that you did for First Nations people. We were so blessed to be able to do it. I made some lasting friendships. In fact, I was adopted into the Cree Indian Nation as a result Mm. of doing that work. And so one of the first people to train was a very famous Indian chief, uh, Chief mm. Victor Buffalo. Uh, he was head of the four Cree Indian tribes at Hobima. Um, and uh, after he had done, because he was on scholarship, he did, uh, and he was close to the sponsor, so he did Alpha 1 and 2 and 3 and Alpha 4 and Theta 1 and 2. And after he had done his Alpha 4, he came to me. He said, Jim, I have a confession. He said, of course, I discontinued onions and garlic before my Alpha 1. But after my Alpha 1, I went back to eating onions and garlic. But he said, after I did my Alpha 2, I wiped them out of my life completely and forever because now my consciousness had risen to the point I could feel what it was costing me to eat onions and garlic. 
Now, most meditative traditions ban the meditators from eating onions and garlic. Uh, In the Indian ones, they say it creates a rajasic temperament. Uh, The the temperaments are three. Uh, Tamas, which is a principle of ignorance or inertia. Uh, Rajas, which is a principle of ego activity and willfulness. And Sattva, which is the principle of enlightenment. And so they say that uh, the, the Indian meditative teachers say that onions and garlic uh, increase rajas, making you more willful, making you more uh, filled with ego, making you, well, you yeah. know, you say being Italian, you know, there's this joke that if you tie an Italian's hands behind their back, they can't talk. Well, some of that agitation comes from eating onions and garlic. Wow. In fact, I tell a personal story. You've been in my home and training center in Victoria, uh, and about once a year, I would invite one of my computer programmers to come from eastern Canada. He lives in uh, uh, Nova Scotia, uh, uh, near New Brunswick. And uh, I would invite him to come and spend a month or so to do upgrades to the Moonscale program. I originally wrote it, but I've had it. At, we've had other languages, and so every time you know we add a new language, and he has to come and put in all the words and definitions and language files and things. And uh, his name is Alan. And he's a geek. He's a wonderful, you know, computer programmer. And he's also very shy. And so he lives with his elderly mother. And the first night he gets there, uh, he goes, well, Jim, you know, my mother's elderly and she lives alone. Would you mind terribly if I would call her? And I'd go into this story and say, well, Alan, yes, anytime you want to call your mother. I have a phone service here where you can call anywhere in North America for free. So anytime you want to call your mother. So he calls his mother. Next day, he comes to me humbly. Jim, I I know that I called my mother yesterday, but would you mind terribly if I would call her again? And I would go through this, you know, every day for, you know, if he's there a month, we would repeat this every day. He humbly comes and asks for permission to call his mother. Okay, so on this particular trip, he's there for about 10 days. I set him up in the living room with a a desk, and he brings his own computer, give him a printer and everything he needs. And Mm. so uh, I get up. And he's at work already, and I go say good morning to him. And uh, he he's like a lion. He's like, Rawr! I go, oh, mm-hmm. Alan, I don't know what's gotten into you. I, this is too early. I can't deal with it. I'm going to go out in the kitchen and have uh, a smoothie. So I make a smoothie, and I look out at the forest. You know how beautiful it is there. And uh, 20 minutes later, I go back uh, to see him, and it's like, Rawr! Alan, I don't know what's gotten into you. Uh, I'm going to go downstairs and get some Kangen water. So I go downstairs to the sink where the Kangen water machine is. I open the cupboards. There's no glasses. So I go, I have to go to the kitchen. I open the kitchen door, and I'm bowled over by the smell of garlic. Well, it's totally oh. forbidden for people to bring garlic onto the property. If they have garlic in their car, they have to park up on the road. Same with alcohol. It's not allowed to be brought onto the property. And so he had brought it on the property. He'd cooked it. He'd eaten it. So, you know, I go and turn all the fans and close doors. And and I go upstairs and I go, Alan, did you have garlic? And he's all of a sudden very humble. And so one garlic meal transformed this meek, mild-mannered geek from, oh, would you mind terribly if I call my mother to, like that. One garlic meal. Now, we, we send out to our trainees. 
a report on how garlic is a brain poison, where people were studying, uh, I think it was um, people in flight training, military flight training, and they'd go out, they'd measure their brain waves and everything. They'd go out and they'd have, you know, Italian pizzas uh, loaded with garlic for lunch, and they'd come back and their alpha waves would be lower. And so I have personal experiences of that. I mean, I don't even need research studies. One time, one time in uh, Sedona, we had a, a lovely a couple come. The the man was a very mild mannered head of a foundation, a research foundation. And uh, as we went through the training, he started to cuss and swear, and uh, it got so bad that one of my technicians, who was working with his wife, said, "Jim, I, I can't, I can't be around this person. I can't have my wife hearing all these swear words." And so yeah. I, you know, I, I noticed it, but I, you know, I'm forgiving and I was overlooking. So I said to, I said to them, you know, you've been going out to uh, have breakfast at restaurants before coming for training. Did you have any? No, no, we've been very careful. No Indians are girls. They said, well, I noticed you've been snacking on buffalo jerky. What's in that? And they said, well, and they looked at it. number one ingredient, buffalo. Number two ingredient, salt. Number three ingredient, garlic. And so over a couple of days of just eating a little buffalo jerky, this mild-mannered man had gotten to cussing and swearing so bad that my technician was about to not show up for work. Wow. I wonder, because in in some of what I read that you sent along, it talked about the heat that it creates in the brain. Oh, uh, the the idea is that, and this was from an article that I read in the Journal for the Study of Consciousness, where... Uh, what the researcher did was it looked at all the molecules that had any kind of psychedelic effect, LSD, psilocybin, dimethyltryptamine, uh, you know, all of them. And they all had a structure where there was an atom in the molecule that was unstable. It bounced back and forth. Well, when an atom bounces mm-hmm. back and forth, it's not like a ping pong ball, you know, boing, boing, boing. It's like, you know, really high frequency. So I took this article to an organic chemist at uh, my university, and I said, could you tell me the frequency at which these atoms are resonating? And he had one of these little green banker's hats, and he was using a slide rule, and, you know, he he did like 45 minutes of calculation. And then his head came up, he pushed up his little green uh, brim hat, and he said, I think they're all in the thermal range. And that, a light bulb went off in my head. Okay, so... If all of these psychedelic molecules, which included onions and garlic, having one of these structures, if they go to a certain part in the brain when they're metabolized and break down, what they would do is they would release a little thermal energy. Well, you know that uh, neural function, you know what happens in a fever, right? You get delirious. Well, if you have a localized fever in some area where this particular psychedelic molecule breaks down, you're going to have, well, like, for example, with LSD, um, they did a study with cats. Now, if you go for a hearing test, they tell you to push a button if you hear a tone. You, yeah. can't, you can't do that with a little kitty. But what they did was they put a small needle electrode into the cochlear nucleus, which is a way station between the hearing mechanism of the ear and the higher hearing centers of the brain. So if the ear, the kitty's ear, resolved acoustic energy into neural energy, you would see activity in the cochlear nucleus. So then they, they measured how faint a sound the kitties could hear. Then they gave them a very tiny dose of LSD, one microgram per kilogram. 
you know, for a 70 kilogram male, there'd be 70 micrograms. Well, kids were taking a thousand or 2000 micrograms. So this is a very tiny dose. It caused a fall in the auditory threshold, a full order of magnitude. The kiddies could hear sounds 10 times fainter because the LSD apparently was stimulating some area in the brain to work more effectively. So was it an hallucination? No, it wasn't an hallucination. It was something that was below the level of hearing. In fact, I want to go sideways here. You know about the Salem witch trials? Yeah. Okay. That was traced by a scientist to be a case of LSD poisoning. Were you aware of that? It's, here, yeah. Here's the story. You know, LSD is is created by the er, fungus ergot that grows on rye. Has to be damp, yeah. damp rye, the grain rye. So it's completely natural. I mean, you can make it in the lab, but you take rye, let it get damp. Ergot grows on it. The ergot fungus produces LSD. Well, so they had good records of the women, what houses they lived in, the women that were burned as witches in the Salem witch trial. They, those houses were served by a farmer who had a farm and right down by the river. So the, the land was damp. He, he grew rye and the year before had been very wet. And so his rye didn't dry properly. So it was wet. It obviously was moldy. And rye and the rye fungus ergot grew on it. Now, only nobody who wasn't served by that farmer, because they knew which houses that farmer provided rye to, those were only the houses that the women were. Now, the men probably, you know, back in those days, men didn't talk much. So, you know, if a man was having ecstatic mystical vision, he wouldn't say anything. But the women would talk about it, and they would be called witches, and they scared their neighbors, and so. The Salem witch trials was 100% caused by LSD poisoning by eating rye that came from this farmer whose land wow. was down near the river the year after a particularly wet year. What, I mean, God, that's a surprising twist. What What would you say, when, when we start talking about finding access, and I'm sure there's so many people who are going to go and read everything available to them on the BioCybernaut website after listening to this conversation— I, I always like to think about where people might be starting. Are there are there small steps that you would say listeners at home can begin taking daily to have healthier and more productive brains? Are there are there beginning kind of instructions that you give to people? Well, uh, I have a book called The Art of Smart Thinking, uh, yes. with more than a dozen chapters, and so that's a wonderful way to begin. It's available on Amazon. Uh, and it's also available uh, from uh, BioCyberNod. And we are going to be starting a webinar where I will give a master class. We don't know if we'll do it weekly or biweekly, but it'll be a 90-minute class where each class will be on one of the chapters from the book. We'll start with chapter mm. one and we'll go through. And the assignment will be to read that chapter. And then I'll come on and talk and then we'll have at least a, a half an hour, if not longer, afterwards for questions. So it'll be, oh, an, interactive, yeah, it'll be an interactive opportunity. That's so cool. It's like a master class and a book club all in one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I My favorite question, and, and it is my, my final question that I like to ask everyone who comes on the podcast, is the following you know the show is called Work in Progress. And I'm curious when you hear the phrase, 
whether it's something personal or professional, what what comes up for you? What feels like a work in progress in your life right now? Oh, it's so wonderful. Let's talk uh, generally, and then I'll come uh, personally. Okay. One of the people who signed on July 4th, 1776, who signed mm. the Declaration of Independence said, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. And mm. so the freedom, the growth of our consciousness requires that we consider ourselves always a work in progress. We are a work in progress. And that work, eternal vigilance, is the price of liberty for us to continue to be free in our minds, for us to continue to grow. We have to consider that we are a work in progress and we have to be doing the work. Yes. Oh, Dr. Hart, I love that. I love that so much. <laughs> now, I said I would start generally, but then personally. Yes. There are several works in uh, progress, um, and one of them is growing out of our every Sunday uh, Power Intention webinar, where we're doing every mm-hmm. Sunday a webinar. Uh, in fact, we just got it on Facebook uh, last Sunday. Uh, we'd had some uh, technical difficulties, but uh, what we're doing is bringing people together to use the power of our shared intention to transform the coronavirus into something that is beneficial to all humans and no Mm. longer harmful. And also so that anybody infected is quickly, uh, fully and permanently healed. So we're doing that. But what we're wanting to do then is to expand that out so that people can, and we've had one person already, request a private intention. So uh, I and others of the team got electrodes on. We went into the chamber. This person had written a very detailed uh, intention, and we did uh, a full half hour of intention to bring that about, uh, kind of like a a wish tank instead of a think tank. We're a wish Mm -hmm. fulfillment tank. So that's one of the things we're working on expanding that. Uh, We're also, and this was, Actually, something that I almost got going uh, four years ago, which are month-long uh, uh, like meditation retreats here at Biosabrina, where people mm. would come for three trainings in a row, separated only by you know the few days for uh, rest. Uh, and uh, so the idea that people could do in, uh, spiritual intensives, go in, and we could uh, you know accommodate people who want to do one month, two months, or even three months. Uh, mm-hmm. And there would be also uh, spiritually uplifting educational videos that would be shown yeah. to people uh, along the way. But that's another work in progress to develop uh, a, a very intensive form of the training. And then uh, for me personally, I'm exploring uh, new uh, forms of feedback, things that you know we're not ready to release to the public yet. But this is how things have come forward. You know, I would do uh, deep theta training and I, you know, see how, uh, you know, how best to deliver it. And then we'd open it to the public. Same with the Delta trainings. The Delta trainings are by invitation only because they confer Cindy's. And so uh, we're exploring, uh, like now I'm right, I'm exploring uh, Alpha Delta training, doing simultaneous Alpha and Delta so that that keeps the brain uh, in a, a, a relatively alert alpha state while also running delta waves, uh, which yeah. come from different generators. So it should be possible, and we're finding that it is possible to do this. 
So cool. Work in I'm progress. just so excited. <laughs> yes, I'm so excited for all that's to come and all the good you're doing for the world. And, and I can't tell you how grateful I am that you're doing so much work to make this technology and these opportunities more accessible to everyone. Thank you so much for the dedication. You're so welcome. It's uh, my vocation. <laughs> yes, indeed. What a joy. It's, it's, it's just such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for today. Delightful so to be with you again. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Clarion Anatomy. Oh, 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 oh,